barely two months old, the 118th Congress is getting advice from all over. For decades, the Project on Government Oversight has issued a list of 13 steps Congress could take to restore trust in government, improve program performance, and keep things honest. Here with this year's highlights, POGO's Governmental Affairs Manager, Dylan Hetler-Gaudet. Dylan, good to have you back. Hey, Tom. Thanks so much for having me back. And in some ways, the advice kind of never changes, you know, have better oversight over spending, better accountability and transparency into spending. Tell us what you think is the top of the list, though, this year, that what the 118th Congress should do. Sure, yeah. So I think you're spot on there. The more things change, the more they stay the same, right? So we we do put out this report at the start of every new Congress. We call it the Baker's Dozen because there are 13 broad categories of recommendations. And you hit on some of the key high-level points there. We do think that there is always a need, kind of an evergreen need to keep better track of spending and where it's going, who it's impacting. Is there equity in that spending? You know, Is there accountability in that spending and so on? So we've got plenty of recommendations around that kind of thing. We've got plenty of recommendations around how to improve ethics standards across all three branches of government. You know, specifically, we do a lot of work on the Pentagon and military oversight in those areas. Uh, one one key area that I've been re- really focused on personally, and I um, was privileged enough to contribute to that part of this report, is around trying to deter and deal with foreign influence in U.S. and domestic policymaking. That is also sort of an evergreen issue, but we've been seeing a sort of a ramp up in that problem in recent years with you know unregistered foreign agents lobbying and things of that nature so we are we are doing some degree of work around that and we sure. hope that the 118th congress will be a good good opportunity to make some progress there and by the way how does that money come in i mean it's not necessarily campaign money is it it no, not be. always, although we do see that as an issue from time to time. You know, technically it is illegal for a person who is of foreign descent who's located internationally to contribute directly into domestic elections. So there are rules around that. We don't always see those rules being enforced or, you know, adhered to per se, but there are rules around there. So the way that money does tend to come through intermediaries. So foreign entities, be they foreign companies or foreign governments, will hire people here in Washington, here in the U.S. to do its own kind of advocacy and lobbying on their behalf. And they're supposed there's supposed to be a sort of a regulatory and transparency framework around that kind of lobbying, although we see from time to time, you know, we see high profile examples of people, you know, high profile people in fact, doing things like adv- advocating and lobbying on behalf of foreign interests who are not registered as they should be. So we do have these we have these rules and systems in place, but we see quite regularly that those rules and systems are not adequate and they're not doing the job. Right. That's kind of how some of that Soros money and similar types of funds come in. For really, you can pick your party. Both parties decry dark money unless it's their own dark money. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing in particular, and we just put out, you know, an explosive investigation on this late last year, and we have some recommendations on how to address it in the Baker's Dozen is the matter of former high ranking you know, officials and generals and people like that coming out of the military and then immediately going to work for someone overseas, be it directly for a foreign government or, or be it or some kind of an entity or a corporation or a company that is based overseas, oftentimes controlled by a foreign government as well. So we're seeing that happen, you know, and we've seen some 
you know, we've seen that happen with some household names in recent years, including former General and Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis, former National Security Advisor James Jones. And so we see this happening and it calls into question the integrity of policymaking and influence peddling here in domestic politics when we see people using their previous experience and their connections and their cachet as high-ranking sure. U.S. officials. They use that and they they get paid rather handsomely to do it on behalf of foreign interests. So we view that as a pretty big problem, too. And this is a long list, and they all could be talked about for an hour. Briefly, one of the Baker's Dozen is ushering in a new generation of accountable defense spending. And there's a lot of facets to that diamond. But what's your basic feeling there? So there's that old adage that there are no things quite so certain as dying and taxes, right? We think you should add a third bit to that, and that is ever-increasing defense budgets. And so we think that there are many opportunities to take a look at defense spending and to make it a little bit smarter, a little bit more efficient, and a little bit more common sense. We don't tend to agree with the view that you just need to spend more on defense no matter what. Uh, There are all kinds of systems out there that are not working that we're spending a lot of money on. The F-35 comes to mind immediately, for example. But there are other ways to clean up the procurement and acquisition process as well. We call it clean contracting. So trying to make sure that when the Pentagon and the government more broadly is trying to negotiate deals around contracts and things of that nature, that they're able to do it in a smarter way that's going to help preserve taxpayer dollars and use them in a responsible way. You know, there are a lot of specific areas in which that is not happening. And so we've got we've got plenty of recommendations on how to address that, including, you know, trying to require more information and more data transparency from contractors once they've received an award mm-hmm. from the federal government, because currently they are not always required to provide that kind of information, which is, you know, huge black box there. We also, again, I referred to it earlier, but part of the issue around, you know, defense spending is we're not always clear where it's ending up and who's making the decision about where it's ending up. So that goes back to the old problem of trying to have more oversight and transparency and reporting mechanisms and collection of data around what's happening with spending once it leaves the door from Congress. We're speaking with Dylan hitler Gaudet. He's government affairs manager at the Project on Government Oversight. And another area I wanted to ask you briefly about is promoting humane treatment by and accountability for government officials. And by that, I guess you mean the federal workforce career-wise, correct? Yeah, that is certainly a part of it. Uh, One thing we're very concerned with is the politicization of the civil service, and specifically we saw in the previous administration, there was this proposal advance called Schedule F, which was going to make it a lot easier to get rid of, you know, career civil servants. And we view this as a potential effort to bring back the patronage and cronyism system to government, which will really undermine the actual efficacy and the quality of the federal government. And so we think that the civil service needs to be protected in some, you know, pretty important ways. But we also think that when it comes to the way that, you know, the American people are treated by certain aspects of the federal government, be it DHS, be it ICE, be it CBP, be it FBI, you know, we do think there needs to be a lot lot more oversight, a lot more accountability into those processes, particularly when you see the violations of constitutional rights and civil liberties happening and they go unpunished. And there's also the issue of 
Congress itself, and one of your recommendations is empowering Congress to better serve its constituencies. There has been uh, disbanded at the end of the 117th session the, uh, the Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress. A lot of those recommendations are being implemented and being debated. So what was your basic message on empowering Congress to better serve its constituencies? Yes, Well, I'm really glad you pointed out the Modernization Committee. We were super happy with what that committee did and how they operated. They were very collegial, very bipartisan. They actually served as kind of a model for how we wish the rest of Congress would function. Unfortunately, that's just not going to happen anytime soon. But we did very much applaud the introduction and the implementation and the adoption of a lot of the Modernization Committee's recommendations. And that work is ongoing to continue to implement those proposals. And one bit of good news is even though the committee itself was disbanded, what did happen is that a subcommittee on the House Administration administration committee was created to basically continue that work of the modernization committee. So we look forward to working with that subcommittee and with the broader House administration committee to try and you know continue to move ahead on the critical effort to basically make Congress the institution that it's supposed to be in our system. It is actually, in our view, supposed to be the most powerful you know, of the branches because it is the branch that is closest to the people. It is the branch that is that is the most accountable and responsive to the people. And so we think that Congress needs to stop cutting its nose off despite its face, and it needs to, to resource itself. It needs to enhance its own capacities by ensuring that it has the staff it needs you know, to do the job, that it has the technological capacities it needs to do the job, that it has the rules and the protocols in place to make sure that the job being done is being done correctly and being done ethically. And there are many, many ways to do that. And so we, we really applaud that work, and we want to see it continue, and we're, uh, you know, we're happy to be a part of that. And I think in doing so, you can create a more effective, more efficacious Congress, and that Congress can in turn hopefully rebuild some of the trust among the American people that it has lost in recent decades. And when you deliver this report to Congress, do you think it has a thump with them? Yeah, we've gotten some really good response so far, and this comes from offices across the aisle, Republicans and Democrats, and and House, you know, committee staff and personal office staff. So we have seen some really good engagement on some of these specific issues. You know, there are some issues that are harder to deal with depending on, you know, who controls Congress at a given time, you know, what the actual dynamics are. But I'd say broadly speaking, you know, you know there is an appetite to still do things, to still get things done beyond the things that are in the headlines. And so that's kind of the sweet spot that we as POGO try to slide into there is where there is some opportunity to get some real substantial things done, even if they're not the top line, you know, headline grabbing things. Dylan hetler Gaudet is Government Affairs Manager at the Project on Government Oversight. Thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you, Tom. Great to be back. And we'll post this interview along with a link to that Baker's Dozen at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a... um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. 
It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by uh, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. That, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, It had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, What I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and 
bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. (laughs) 
So that's sort of the way that's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural Southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.